0: Angered is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Christopher Becks. For the past 18 years, Mr. Becks has served as the president and a board member of the Remnant Trust. The Remnant Trust is a public educational foundation that shares an actively growing collection of manuscripts, first edition, and early works dealing with the topics of individual liberty and human dignity, with some pieces dating as early as 2500 B.C. The Remnant Trust makes this collection available to colleges, universities, and other organizations for use by students, faculty, scholars, and the general public. Those exposed are encouraged to touch, feel, and read the originals, including First English Translations. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. For more information on CLT's mission and details about upcoming test dates, head to www.cltexam.com slash get started. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation.
1: Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, an exciting day. We have two uh, Hillsdale graduates here. We have Rachel Grabb, uh, who is our uh, departing director uh, of secondary school partnerships. Rachel is moving on to the Veritas School of Richmond. Uh, everyone at CLT is not happy with Mr. Keith Nix for stealing our dearly beloved Rachel from us. Uh, Rachel, But wonderful uh, work during your time here. Uh, i thrilled to have you on the podcast Uh, today. And then we're also here with uh, Mr. Chris Becks, uh, who uh, has served as the president and a board member of the Remnant Trust. Uh, He holds his bachelor's degree in English from Hillsdale College uh, and his master's degree in literature from the University of Purdue, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, Chris, Rachel, uh, thrilled to have you both with us today.
2: My pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Chris, love to uh, to start off uh, talking about kind of your your early years and then your journey to Hillsdale college.
2: Um, so uh, yeah, my, I, I guess I was led to Hillsdale a bit. Um, I'd like to say it was all uh, philosophically motivated, but um, <laughs> I, I decided to go to Hillsdale because they uh, were foolish enough to let me play basketball. Um, and nice, uh, that that was appealing at least as a, as a high school senior um, to get me motivated in that direction. But Before that, uh, my connection to some of these ideas and authors and things like that started at home, um, as I think it does for many people. Um, I always say that I had some of this stuff beat into my head as a kid. Um, My 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 dad had a lot to do with that when I was when I was younger. Okay,
1: tell us uh, a bit more about that. Your your dad is uh, he he wants the kiddos reading old books. How would you describe it?
2: Um, yeah, so he wants people to talk about the ideas in these books, right? So, um, it's what he's done all of his, uh, I would say all of his adult life. He got started with uh, educational foundation in the late sixties. Um, and it was about proper functions of government, responsible citizenship, um, it kind of all that kind of rings true and rings a bell as it connected to, uh, what the remnant trust came out of that, you know, it's the late nineties and this idea of the Great Books Program, University of Chicago, uh, yep. Adler and Hutchinson. Um, and we thought we would just focus on the ideas of liberty and dignity. And that's kind of where that started.
1: Okay, fantastic. I really like the language you used a moment ago. Uh, kind of beat into us because the fruit is is often down, down the road. You know, and, and sometimes students are not super jazzed about, you know, these older ideas and these older older books, which don't have the... You know, it's not uh, it's kind of like eating fast food to read the Diary of a Wimpy Kid or something like that. right? It's <laughs> yeah. it's, cheap yeah. and it's entertaining. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, sure. I mean, that's, uh, you know, so Harry Potter comes to mind and it's uh, it's one of those things that sticks in the you know, now I sound like a college professor sticks in the zeitgeist. Right. It's really a hot button. Everybody's talking about it. everybody knows about it. And uh, I think it's difficult at times to say, well, look, that's a way to get people in and to get kids reading in general. And, yeah, the stuff I heard when I was a kid growing up uh, wasn't wasn't what motivated me, you know, through my teen years and didn't motivate me very much in college. Um, But it was always there in the background. It was always something that, um, well, that I eventually I came back to and realized that there was there was a lot of truth. Um, to use a word lightly, and you know, trying to be involved with that, trying to connect to those ideas, and get other people to engage with them too.
1: And before digging in and, and chatting about the Remnant Trust, uh, I would love to hear a bit more about your time at Hillsdale because, as I understand it, back in the mid '90s, when Hillsdale was a good college, but it wasn't like this 18 percent acceptance rate with a billion dollar endowment and like the empire that Hillsdale has now become that so many of us love. And, and by the way, Chris. Uh, A full 25% of CLT staff, we've got about 24 full-time now, uh, Hillsdale graduates. Um, Very close relationship. Uh, It certainly put CLT on the map when Hillsdale adopted back in March of 2017. Um, So what has that been like uh, as an alum kind of seeing that? I mean, maybe Hillsdale has transitioned more than maybe any other liberal arts college, even since the time you graduated.
2: There's a there's definitely been a shift um, in what I perceived of Hillsdale. Um, I mean, I tell people that I don't think I'd get in uh, today. I, I don't think you know. I I think I had good grades out of out of uh, out of high school, but I don't think I'd get in with um, the acceptance rate with the the uptick in uh, in so much there on campus. Um, It was definitely not what it is today. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a a good or a bad thing to say. It was different. Um, It was still talking about these ideas and still, um, you know, the Richard Weaver ideas have consequences. There are some things that are carved in stone. Those are things that I definitely uh, engaged with and were echoed at Hillsdale. Um, You know, I I thought Hillsdale had a, a wider uh, spectrum of student at that time. And, and I don't know, right. This is my perception as a, what, 49. I'm not sure what the student body is like today, my perception is that it's, uh, more libertarian, more conservative than it maybe was in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's fine. I, I think it, you know, it, it's moving their mission and it's getting people obviously they're, uh, kind of a kind of a powerhouse in the field. I mean, that's what people talk about. There's a, there's an immediate connection, in people I deal with around the country, when that happens to come up, that I went to Hillsdale. Hmm. um, There are lots of questions that come from that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So really excited to talk about Remnant Trust. I've been hearing about the work you're doing for a couple of years now, actually. Uh, For our our audience, if somebody has has never heard of the Remnant Trust before, how would you kind of describe uh, the work you're doing, the mission, the focus?
2: sure so the, the remnant trust uh, our uh, our focus is about you know it's a it's a long mission statement about elevating educational ideals and things like that but what we want is to get people to understand where the ideas of liberty and dignity came from how they've developed through the centuries and how we use that knowledge to understand where we are and hopefully guide us as we move forward So um, one of the things I reference are the ideas of democracy, which we throw around willy-nilly around the country. I don't think we fully understand it. We don't understand the difference between it and a republic. And I point out that, you know, the idea of democracy didn't just jump up out of the ground in Virginia in the 1770s. It's, I mean, these are the big questions, right? I mean, and, and what you guys do at CLT, this is about this. These are the big truth things, capital T, lowercase t. Um, what is it that we do when we gather in society? How do we function? How do we get along with each other? How do we show respect to each other in the, you know, the definition of dignity with that? So we took that kind of idea that, uh, that, that germ of agitation or irritation or instigation of uh, conversation and focused on the great works of mankind. You start about 1900. And you go back and anything that's been written about those ideas, we have originals and first editions of those books in our collection. We have about 1500 documents Hmm. and we share them. We take them to colleges and universities and some secondary schools and to libraries and any other institutes, people that want to talk about these things. And we let people handle them. And and I really mean handle, touch, pick them up out of Hmm. the case um, spend time with the real, whether it's a Federalist from 1788 or it's uh, you know, a Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women. Um, anything in our collection is available for people to use.
1: Well, What is the oldest document?
2: Um, so the oldest uh, item in the collection is a cuneiform tablet from about 2500 to 2200 BC. Um, wow. it's, uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting. It's fun that it's a, basically an IOU. Um, It's a reminder from one person to a second person that they owe money to a third person. Um, So I think it's uh, obviously we we feel like it fits in the ideas of the collection.
1: Can can you articulate? I mean, I I have felt this and I I think most people feel it. You know, when you get your hands on, I think uh, it was a Thomas More book. I actually got my hands on when I was at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts up in New Hampshire. That was an original, I, I guess, 400 years old or so. Um, and there's something really powerful when that happens. It kind of breaks into just a different level of your understanding of the weight of it, of the significance of it. Can you articulate on why having originals matters?
2: Um, I can try, right? I think it's one of those uh, one of the things that we somehow stumbled upon, I guess, or you know went purposefully looking to, looking for. Is that there's something uh, magical or religious or ethereal? that happens in that connection to the real thing. Like you're describing, if it's a, uh, um, you know, uh, Milton's area from 1644, first printing in English that you pick up and you hold and you, it makes it more real. I think it directly connects. I use the word concretizes history. So we're talking about being in college and I, I was an English major and you read excerpts and selections from different works and you take notes in class but the difference between that and picking up um, Thomas Paine's Common Sense from 1776, um, best-selling book in the, in America at that time outside of the Bible, and this is the real. This is how people understood the world at that time. It's how they interacted with uh, what was going on around them, with those big ideas. It's how they were informed. Um, it's what gathered them together, so that you know the people that didn't own it heard other people reading it. And there's definitely, there's something to it. Any um, Anytime that I have that experience, I bring people into our collection, or I go out to a college somewhere, people don't want to touch these items. Mm. Um, if, if you have a, a manuscript of Aristotle's ethics from like the 1400s, people look at it and they, they gasp and they go, oh, that's pretty and things like that. But no one wants to touch it. Even when I say, oh, you can touch this. And, uh, you know, I get some sort of pleasure out of the fact that I, I kind of force it on them and put it in their hands and that creates a, a whole new level. And again, that's, uh, we've been doing this for 25 years and if, if it, if it wasn't working, I think we'd be doing something else, but, but it, it connects to the people. They, they have an appreciation for it. And I think it's that, that catalyst of contact with the real thing that gets people, into a mindset of discussing the ideas that they can yeah, it, it draws something out. You know, maybe they haven't looked at or thought about these ideas since they were in college or maybe they didn't go to college and they knew about them in high school. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, there's definitely something that, that access to those documents is again, as I understand it, we're the only place in the world that lets people, you know, handle rare books mm-hmm. like this that we travel around like a, like a glorified bookmobile.
1: Do You do secondary schools as well, or are you mostly going to college campuses?
2: So mostly colleges and universities. We've done a handful or so of um, of secondary schools, uh, like Brookfield Academy up in Wisconsin, or uh, Thomas Jefferson. What is that called? Independent Day School, maybe out in Missouri. We've done okay. a few, a couple schools in Indiana, but by and large, it's it's colleges and universities.
1: So, Chris, I'm wondering if you could, you know, the 25 years now that Remnant Trust has existed, I'm wondering if has there been a real shift uh, a growing hostility towards these older ideas, these older books, you know, some people will say this is, these are isolated events. This is just a a right-wing talking point. Um, there's not really a growing hostility. Uh, can you kind of break through the noise for us? Is there an attack on, on the classics of these old books and ideas?
2: Um, I, I, again, like, like all of those things I, I can try. Um, There seems to be more vocal animosity um, towards what people perceive, like with the Remnant Trust, what they perceive us to be. I don't think it's accurate what they perceive, but if you get up anywhere and you start saying, oh, Thomas Paine or John Locke um, or the founders or the founding parents or whatever, there's an immediate and much more... um, Aggravated response today than I would say there was when we started doing this. Mm. Um, you know, 25 years ago, it, it wasn't the same thing. There has been, at least in my professional career, always a move or concern about um, the canon, about uh, dead white men, um, that kind of criticism and response uh, about all of these things. But there does seem to be more of that immediate response. And one of the things that, that that separates, I think, the trust in many ways or helps answer those questions are when we have the opportunity to articulate and say, I'm not I'm not telling you that John Locke is the answer to all things. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm not telling you that Thomas Hobbes is the answer to all things either. I'm presenting both of them. I'm, here's a first edition of Leviathan. Here's a second edition of uh, Locke's two treatise. And let's understand what they said. Let's understand what their influence is and let's discuss it. Let's think about it. Right. It's not um, it's not the easy soundbite. It's not the 30 Mm. seconds news clip. It is. uh, Let's let's consider it. Let's discuss it. I think that these books have a way of bridging some of that that gap or that divide, because, uh, I mean, when you talk about Aristotle and Plato and even when you talk about things like Thomas Paine, um, the whole range of the political spectrum points to these people as inspirational, as mm-hmm. touchstones and, and, and guide stars that, that guide us through all these things. Uh, Payne's a great example in that we talk about uh, common sense, rights of man, uh, uh, sec, uh, what, second uh, two dissertations on government and um, the pieces that he wrote as inspirational for the revolution. Um, inspire the troops at Valley Forge. Um, if not for the pen of Payne, you know, the sword of Washington and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time in Payne's later life, he wrote things like agrarian justice. Mm. And that is something that I think most of, if, if we're going to divide everybody, people on the right would not point to as a thing that they like. Mm. While people on the left wouldn't necessarily like common sense. And I think you can talk about these people and have it not be about you know, who you're voting for at the next midterm election and and how you understand it. But I think it informs the choices that we all make. When I, this is me on my soapbox, the items, the people, the authors, the works in our collection influence all the decisions we make every day. We don't think about it. We're not aware of it. But um, the, the insights that Frederick Douglass brings to how people are treated and what dignity means Influence how we interact with people all day, whether it's somebody that you have a connection to, you have a relationship with someone who can be of no benefit to you whatsoever and how you interact with them, what you say to your kids or what you don't say to your kids, as as seems to be a topic currently, you know, what we do or don't say to kids or what we want other people to Mm -hmm. or not to say. And having that again, I think it's, it's a it becomes a deeper conversation. At least that's mm-hmm. what I like to imagine and, uh, you know, g- gets people to engage with those things on a, on a deeper level. It's, it's difficult. We're, we're a busy, busy world, busy society. We have lots of things. We have kids doing this. We have spouses doing that and it, and it's hard, right? I mean, it, it's, it's hard work. It's like, it's like going to Hillsdale. It takes some mm-hmm. effort. It, it takes some, some thought <coughs> and determination to sit down and say, all right, let's talk about why this is a big deal or, um, you know, the kids see news more than they should and pick any subject, any any story that's on TV and discuss it with them. I think that these books allow people to do that or encourage them to do that more than they do right now.
1: You know, we, we could talk all day, I'm sure, about uh, the concept of a canon or the canon. And it's been interesting as CLT went from not existing just kind of an idea back in 2015 um to where more and more you know as people are trying to get a sense of what is the canon um you know saint john's college reading list thomas aquinas college reading list and I, i've heard a number of times now clt reading list as well we have an author bank with about 160 authors and two-thirds of all of the texts uh that we put in front of students on the clt 8 clt 10 or clt are drawn from the author bank and there has been a lot—a very intense, very passionate, very healthy debate uh, about that. We've got an incredible academic board, and we've we've had some academic heavyweights really go deep and try to come up with the best list possible. Um, at Remnant Trust, how ha- how do you approach this question um, of of the canon? Is it is it just a vague concept? Are there some things that are just un- they are not even debatable? Like you know, you're going to have Macbeth and Shakespeare as part of the canon. Um, what are the thoughts there? And what, is, what does the Remnant Trust do on that on that front?
2: Uh, good, good uh, yeah, good question. So um, <clears throat> the way the Trust got started is we approached a variety of academics with this idea of give us the top 100 works on liberty and dignity. And we compiled a bunch of those. Uh, former president of Indiana University, uh, John Ryan, was on our board. He led us to a few people I think even maybe a couple of professors from Hillsdale were involved with it um, in the early days. And the trust compiled those lists. And as you can imagine, on a good portion of it, there's consensus on, say, 85% of that list. On things like Kant and Rousseau, those those were people that not everybody agreed with. Not everybody put those on that list. Mm. At at some level, the Romantic Trust makes an arbitrary decision. Um, and we said, yeah, we're going to add those to the list. We compiled that list of hundred and tried to find it. One of the ways I think that we address, um, the questions about what the canon is or isn't, um, I talk about it as uh, as a guidepost, right? It's, it's not necessarily, these are the only things that you should read or be aware of, but these are things that, um, that are very important, uh, I, w- I would probably argue they're the most important, but, but that's another that's another conversation. Um, so from that list of 100, we now have 1,500 documents in the collection. Um, mm. While uh, Aristotle and Plato were on all of those lists, I would say things like uh, Jeremy Bentham. Um, I, from our standpoint, Shakespeare wasn't on the list to begin with because we were focused on the ideas of liberty and dignity. We were very economics, political science, theology focused. Um, but as that grew again, as an English major, yeah, I'm, I'm very much in favor of us adding Shakespeare to the collection. Um, we should have some Chaucer in the collection. There's, there's a lot of literature out there. Um, and that list slowly expanded outside of what's called the West. Um We have the Bhagavad Gita in the collection. We have works by Confucius in the collection. Um, We have the Quran in the collection. And again, I think it's about being willing to have that conversation rather than it's, here's a list and these are the five things you have to know. It's, here's the list of whatever, five things. Let's start with this. If you think there's something that we're missing, let's discuss it. Um, but do it in such a way that it's about inquiry. It's about questions and rather than it be by fiat that, you know, this is somebody I don't like. So we're just going to automatically discard them.
1: Uh-huh. You know, I am convinced uh, that one of the reasons we've had such a breakdown in civil dialogue is because of the, the loss of any kind of a, of a common canon reading list, the things that, I mean, so many colleges now have kind of gone all a cart where there's nothing required. For all of the students together, uh, you know I think we especially see this on the uh, the loss of basic civic knowledge with the vast majority of Americans, especially those under forty five, uh, who can no longer even pass a U.S. citizenship test. Um, as I hear though, and I, I want to listen well to folks who who want to push back against the canon. One of the arguments is this: is that uh, you know Shakespeare and a lot of the folks who got. Uh, they were connected to publishers. They were connected to to money, and that uh, you know, folks who may have have written some deep truths or some beautiful work, they simply didn't have the the connections. Um, how would you respond to that kind of an argument?
2: Um, I, I I think that it's an argument, and let's and I want to hear it articulated. I think that it's also, um, uh, I mean, so Shakespeare is one I could take particular uh, uh, a bit of uh, umbrage with. You know, people poking at that. In that, I I don't care what piece of Shakespeare you sit down and read, uh, I think if you the next time you read it, you're going to get something different from it. I think that's part of why it's still um, central in the debate and the conversation about these ideas. Um, For whatever the reason is, I, I think that we can discuss that, but just because someone may have been connected to power or had access to wealth doesn't automatically discount them as worthless or as... Uh, somehow higher above their station. If there's someone else that we should be considering, let's have that conversation. I would agree with you very much that um, I haven't given it thought in terms of, say, the the classics and the canon that we don't have civil dialogue. Um, There definitely seems to be a lack of uh, commonality uh, of experience, right? That we don't have the same uh, touchstones. I, I keep using that term, but we don't have that same interaction with uh, an understanding of the way the government works or an understanding of what civil dialogue is and how we engage in it. And that it's, again, we, we twist around meanings. We're, we're talking about Shakespeare and, you know, some colleges have gone a la carte, but when I was an undergrad applying to graduate school, Shakespeare wasn't required at all the big 10 mm-hmm. schools to get a degree in English. Yeah. Um, now, I get that there are lots of options. There are other things that can be read. Um, I would just I question that they're all interchangeable, Mm, Um, that that any 10 of these is uh, is acceptable. And I'm a huge um, pop pop culture guy. I like that kind of stuff. I think it's informative. I think I I enjoy it. Um, And I think it adds to the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but it adds to a conversation that is kind of backfilled or backstopped with what's come before us and why we think those things are uh, are important. Why why are we trying to teach our kids? Why are we trying to teach your kids anything? I mean, any conversation I have, I've got a 13 and a 16 year old and a 12 year old. Mm-hmm. Anytime I have a conversation with them, they hate it because at some level I start lecturing about why this is important that we do certain things or. You know, you can't lie to me because I will never trust you again. And how that's important—not only say in my house, but think about what it's like in your in the world. Let alone, you know, when you go into a classroom, do you trust that the teacher is telling you something? But then you go into the wider world, and you know, you're watching a, a news broadcast or you're at a debate forum or any of those kind of things. And again, I always point to that. I think it's it's difficult. To have those, it has to be a very mindful, um, almost in your mind. It has to be mandated that you're going to do that when you converse with people.
3: All right, so Chris, um, one of the questions I have, we share our Hillsdale experience. Um, you were, I think, a year ahead of me, as we just we found out recently. Um, what were one of the one or two works that really sparked your interest in um, classic texts and? Um, uh, you know, kind of getting where you decided this is something I want to do and something that you did kind of, you know, on your own?
2: Right. Um, Yeah. So good question. Uh, So I I think maybe like most undergrads uh, for a good amount of time, I had really no idea what I wanted to do. Um, What was good about Hillsdale was an exposure to uh, new things that I hadn't hadn't had as a a younger kid, but also some uh, reintroduction to things I was aware of. And um, as I dallied around being a history major, or being a math major, or being an English major, um, English is what really resounded with me. Uh, um, you experienced this. You had some of the same professors I did, that there was something about being engaged by them and talking about these big ideas and, and deep thoughts about the pieces we were reading that really pushed me forward. I mean, that was my that was my plan when I graduated. I was going to go to uh, graduate school. I was going to get my doctorate. I was going to figure out how to be. You know, a Hillsdale College English professor, for lack of a better a better term, whether that's uh, uh, Dr. Sundahl or Dr. Olson. It was going to be one of those two, at least in my head. And it was uh, so things like uh, so Washington Irving struck a chord with me, always had Van Winkle, uh, you know, Sleepy Hollow, all that kind of stuff really, uh, really struck me. And um, in uh, in my senior year, when I was doing my, uh, I guess it was my thesis at that time for uh, for Shakespeare uh, with Dr. Bell, which was um, an awful, grueling, grinding process. No offense to Dr. Bell, but um, that was that was the point where it really struck me again to the Shakespeare point that I was reading. I think it started as Richard the Third, and then ended up on Hamlet. And I think I read both of them at least five times that semester. Um, and somewhere, you know, in the in the stacks, I have those copies. Each time I read, I had a different color pen. And so these are littered with notes in various colors throughout. And it stuck with me and followed me into grad school that there was there was a lot there, right? There's a lot to unpack. These are these are deep, meaningful things. And you can read it and have a very different opinion from the next person that reads it. Um, And you can point to the specifics as Jeremy and I talk about certain things like we can discuss and you can completely disagree with me. But let's let's discuss it civilly and and figure out where that leads us. And that uh, that experience at Hillsdale, I think, is probably one of the biggest ones that that pushed me. Um, I grew up, as I mentioned to Jeremy, with some of this stuff kind of beaten into my head. Um, I knew Thomas Paine stuff when I was in elementary school. Um, I went to, a, I went to a private Christian school and I had to get permission to read from, uh, uh, was it the crisis where he says, uh, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. And, you know, I had to get permission so that I could say that in my Baptist school um, and not get in trouble or whatever. But those things, uh, again, uh, I think some of this, you know, we become in many ways or in some ways, our parents and those conversations I had. Echo into the conversations I have now with my kids and are informed by the things I was reading and that there were um, there was a lot to there's a lot to understand. I mean, I I don't know anything right now and there's more to learn and being exposed to those great ideas, those great thinkers. I I learn uh, nearly daily with the work of the trust because there are authors and books in our collection that I've never read. That I barely—I mean, you, you i might be able to tell you a little bit about them, but not—not um, not to any substance. And being able to share that and to use those documents, um, I refer to them as a catalyst. Uh, whether it excites people or it incites them, depending upon the the person, to talk about them, to learn more about them, to to understand why, you know. Uh, Aristotle and Plato, or, or Adam Smith and Jeremy Bentham, and that these are names and, and people that we hear thrown around a lot by a lot of different people. Why? Why, why does anybody reference Adam Smith? Hmm. And if, if you didn't study economics, then you don't have a good a good understanding of that. So you need to learn about it. Right? It, it puts an onus on people to educate themselves. Uh, we get a lot of that uh, growing up in the home. We get that in high school. We get that in college. Um, once you get out of college, it's all on you. And, you know, finding out that, that Smith didn't just write wealth of nations, that he wrote the theory of moral sentiments and that he considered it his most important work and to mm. understand how that informs what we think of with American capitalism. And uh, I, I mean, that, that in particular is influential on me um, that you get lots of criticism. At least I do. I interact with people who there's criticism of what capitalism is. Um, I reference the, uh, uh, there's a Simpsons episode where uh, they have a foreign exchange student and his name is Adil. And uh, he's discussing with Lisa um, about what goes on in the economics and everything. And then Homer, of course, steps in and says, you know, maybe Adil has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. And then he says, but maybe Lisa has a point about America being the land of opportunity. And I think that 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 10 seconds of The Simpsons encompasses, I think, is what you guys do. Mm. And I think it's what the Remnant Trust does. I, I want people to have both of those things presented to them. And then I want them to discuss it. I want to talk about it. I want to find out why they maybe value one thing a little bit more than another. And I want, not only do I want to find out about who that person is, I want them to understand about it as well. So, so that kind of gets to uh, how these things, it, it's definitely these ideas and authors are things that have interwoven throughout my life. Um, but I think that the the most formative things have happened, you know, probably after Hillsdale, you know, probably started in Hillsdale and took place more as an adult.
3: Yeah yeah that's great. um one of my former students who just graduated or is graduating this spring rather from um a prestigious state university in the state where I currently live um university of <laughs> michigan <laughs> um just just commented recently to me that that in his um in his four years now at University of Michigan, he has not been required to read anything that was published before two thousand and sixteen so um that's and he's powerful. I know. I know. And, and he's a really bright, very bright young man. What's his degree in? Business. Okay. So, yeah. Um, but, but it's concerning to me because, because the way, um, education forms people, if, if that's what, you know, fortunately he had an education at the school where I had him as a student. So he had a great books foundation, um, in, in his, um, high school years, um, But, but when we can kind of compartmentalize a student into a particular degree program and say everything before five years ago is not relevant and isn't important, we've really cut them off, not just from culture, but from like you were saying, from, from whole conversations Um, even from even just from a relational aspect where it's not as if as he graduates from U of M and he goes into the business world as a 21, 22 year old, he's only going to interact with 21 and 22 year olds. He needs to even have the cultural context to be able to talk to someone who's in their 50s, 60s, 70s and understand them and the kinds of conversations that they've had and the type of education that they've had as well. So if for no other reason, just to be able to connect, be connected with the previous generations, but even ideologically, if we are so compartmentalized that we don't, we're not able to have any kind of common conversation around um, Shakespeare or around Adam Smith or around Aristotle or Plato, we've really just sort of stopped having any ability, I think, in my view, to, to interact with others who are different from us ideologically, because you know we've had um, one of our wonderful prestigious guests that we had on our anchor podcast is Cornell West, who has a who has a lot of different ideal, um, you know, set of ideology, and he has, you know, just a completely different approach to to a lot of things. I think that that conservatives would raise eyebrows at. However. We can have interesting conversations with somebody like him because we have the, com- mm-hmm. you know, the commonality of the canon to discuss and to to kind of help us frame those debates. And then also the, you know, I think to the value there is that the debate doesn't become about you anymore. It's about this much bigger thing that has puts us in, into context too, not just the ideas but ourselves. Um, So I don't know if you, I know you've you've kind of commented on that, um, but if you wanted to talk about a little bit about how, how the breakdown of not just for our high school students, but for university students that are not studying anything older than five years, you know, publication wise, like what, what is kind of the, what are the implications of that? Um, do you think in the next as these students who are in their early 20s, and maybe 20, 30 years from now, and they're the ones making the, the decisions in Washington and they're the ones making the decisions around, are we going to send our young men and women off to war or what is our foreign policy going to be? What are the implications? It's not just it's not just this tiny little thing. I mean, to me, I see a lot of reverberation around this sort of thing is wondering if you could talk about that.
2: Right. Absolutely. I I think that there's uh, so the implication is incredibly far reaching. And uh, I I think that's one of the things that the trust tries to bring into focus is that these are ideas that um, didn't start five years ago, seven years ago, that these are conversations that man has always had. Um, Whatever it is that, that, that you think, believe or follow, whether it's when we came up out of the ocean or came down out of the trees or, you know, came forth in the Garden of Eden that anytime we've tried to enter into interactions with each other, uh, we've had to have these conversations. Right. And, you know, maybe not to begin with, let's say if, if I was the guy with the biggest club, we didn't have to have this conversation, but as soon as there were more people there uh, it's, it's how we interact. It's how we care for each other. It's how we maintain our our own individual sovereignty, if you will. So, Uh, The idea that moving forward, people won't look back more than five years is um, staggering, to say the least. Um, It is very much, I think, a wake-up call. um, Any of those interactions, when I see things, uh, statues being torn down, Um, universities changing, you know, names and mascots and everything like that. I think that, again, I think there's a big conversation to be had for probably most of those. Um, I definitely disagree with it being a knee-jerk reaction. I I disagree with there's a bit of an outcry, so we're going to tear something down. Um, Partly because of my experience at Hillsdale, partly because of who I am as an adult, is that I look to our history as informational and as a direction, I do not look to it as um, a roadmap of only positive things, right? I mean, at what point do we stop discussing um, any nation that did something that we don't like? I mean, it seems like that's a you know, that it's a bit of a jump, but isn't that what we're talking about? If there's a person who did one single thing, or let's say uh, 45% of what they did, we disagree with. Do we throw the baby out with bathwater? Um, I don't think we do. I think that's irresponsible. I think it's short-sighted, which is what you're describing in a a five-year look back for an education. Um, We're also, it seems like it's dancing around this idea. I I don't know when I, when I went to college and I don't think it was because I was going to Hillsdale. I think when I went to college in general, I had um, a perception that, that we were, we were all going to sit around the union and talk about these ideas late into the night. And tried to understand, um, you know, these deep philosophical conversations and, and try to understand these things that we had just read and how do, how do we fit into that world and how do we take that knowledge out with us? Um, I know I definitely had that in the forefront of my mind when I went to grad school and, um, that's not what happened, but, <laughs> but that's a, that's a different thing. Um, it's it's uh, so it's it's a liberal arts education, right? I mean, I hate to, to, to trot you guys out there, but it's, it's classical learning. It's a liberal arts education that isn't educating you for a specific job. It's teaching you how to learn in some ways. And in order to learn, you have to know what we're based on, um, how we've interacted throughout the centuries. And that's something that, that gets lost if we avoid all of those things. Um, if you want to go be a plumber uh, and uh, a carpenter and, and a mechanic and electrician, and I'm very much in favor of those things. Um, I wouldn't dissuade anybody who's interested in that field. That's fine. Um, but if you're going to um, try to engage in society and, and again, plumbers and architects and you know, electricians do that, but if you're going to try to understand those things and you don't want to look at anything prior to five years ago, um, you don't have a chance. You, you can't understand what we're doing. You can't understand the conversations we have. Um, I, uh, I I mentioned briefly. You know, I, I like pop culture. I like gadgets. I like science fiction and fantasy. Those are the things that that, um, that fire my blood just a little bit. Like uh, like these old books and. I look at uh, TV and TV networks and the plethora of things to watch in comparison to being a kid and having four channels to look at. And I think how there's something lost there because we can't all sit down and talk about the same thing around the water cooler. Um, And it's good in many ways because it it broadens our horizons. I'm not sure I would have seen uh, squid game uh, 40 years ago. I would not have known about, uh, about television from another country. Um, and I think there's a lot that can be gleaned and gained from those things as well. But if I look at it in a bubble and no one else is aware of it, it's useless. Um, we have to, uh, we have to all engage in it. And, and I really believe that that's a, that's a big, um, not to use the word inclusive, but it's, it's a big hoop to throw over a lot of things That we can understand uh, that you can come in and say, look, I think everything about whatever the Western canon might be like if you somehow stop a globe right this instant and say this is exactly what Western canon is and it's these finite number of books and I think that's all wrong and we should throw it all away. I don't think that we can have a conversation now. You can do that, stop everything and say, here are a couple of things in there that I think are worth considering, that are worth debating. Maybe there's something that could take its place or augment it or supplant it. Like, yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable conversation. Let's discuss. I can have that conversation. Um, but if you just come in and say everything about you, the way you are right now, I see you, I've never conversed with you, is wrong and unacceptable. Um, I mean, we, we wouldn't do that to people. I wouldn't do that to someone. And, and the idea that some people can, and some people can't do that, I think is really missing the boat. And, and I think that more people are interested in a conversation. They're more interested in learning and understanding than we think. Um, so this will be, I got on my soapbox again. So the idea of the remnant trust, the word remnant comes from Albert J. Knock. Um, was a philosopher late 1800s wrote something uh a short essay called isaiah's job reference to the bible um and the idea that the remnant is out there and you don't know who they are and you don't know where they are all you know is that you're supposed to go about trying to find people who um care who want to know about who want to try to reconstitute or reestablish society based on what we have all kind of come to understand and I think that's what it's about. Um, you. So this goes to uh, this goes to my uh, what, my master's dissertation or thesis. Of uh, uh, talked about Camus and the Myth of Sisyphus, right? So uh, on on good days when I'm when I'm optimistic about the world, um, and I still think that we're all Sisyphus and we're all pushing a rock up a hill and it's gonna roll back down. That's what you do though, right? Even though you're at the bottom of the hill, you've got the rock and there's the big hill and you know that that's the one, what you do is you choose to try and you try to push it up that hill and you know, maybe it rolls back down, but you can try again. And I think that's, I, I don't know. And again, this is not how I you know start the day. I don't jump out of bed thinking this, um, but on good days, that's what I think that people who care about the next generation who care about understanding where we are, how we move forward in a good and, and thoughtful mm. way, um, how we show um, love and how we preserve things that are good and right and beautiful is that that's what you do. You, you try to do that. Again, the, the pessimist in me says that even if we fail, that's what you try to do.
1: Chris, before we go into our last question, just a comment here uh, at CLT. We always say we do two things really well. We, we make really good tests and we throw really good parties slash event. <laughs> and uh, man, we would love to have we have a great higher ed summit right here in Annapolis. Uh, we are doing a lot of local events, just had one in, in Texas, a Texas classical education summit. Um, would love to have Remnant Trust present I and mean, it would be so powerful to have some of these old texts there for people to pick up and hold. Um, Chris, final question for you. What What is, uh, we always end the Anchor podcast asking our guests to, to speak about the book that has been most formative for them, most impactful. So what is that for you?
2: Wow. Uh, yeah, right. Um, so I will shape it in terms of, uh, I'll say two things. Um, because I'm not gonna, yeah. You know, so one, I'll accept your question and then just not answer it. I'll say that there are two. Um, from the standpoint of books in the Remnant Trust collection, I'll point to uh, a 1470 manuscript of boethus's Consolation of Philosophy. Wow. Um, like- yeah. So, uh, it's uh, not anything I had ever heard of. I wasn't aware of him, even in some of the obscure research I did as an undergrad. Um, so he uh, he's imprisoned, uh, and he starts to write what is a early piece of prison literature. And the muse philosophy comes to see him uh, trying to, uh, you know, console him again, back to the to the title, the consolations of philosophy, uh, as far as how you live your life and, and how you are guided. And the book itself as an object is interesting because it was made with ink that has turned acidic. So it's actually consuming itself. Um, We have uh, retarded that process and slowed it as much as possible. Um, But that's uh, I like the idea of the the book is consuming itself. And uh, the philosophy aspect of it. This this is before
1: the printing press, right? I mean, this this, is.
2: uh, So this is right along about the same time. So printing press uh, really takes off with Gutenberg about 1450. Um, So this is slightly after. That has started, but they are still man, uh, producing manuscripts by hand.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Wow. Um, so it's, it's all been hand It's all handwritten. And uh, again, the idea is, so uh, there's a more contemporary author, uh, Orson Scott Card, um, who one of the things that he wrote is that uh, the consolations of philosophy are many, but never mm-hmm. enough. And so I I like the the combination of of, of those two things. Um, As a kid, I would say it was The Hobbit.
3: Um,
2: For whatever reason, I think if you had put The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings down and The Silmarillion and things like that in front of me when I was eight, I would not have been interested. That would have seemed intimidating. Um, But I got The Hobbit with a uh, video game for a computer. Um, The full book came with the game. And uh, I was hooked. Um, so again, we're talking about a journey. We're talking about the maturation of of the main character, trials and tribulations. What do you gain? What do you lose? Um, I mean, I think that's again, maybe it's the English major in me. Like I look at that, I see that in everything.
1: Chris, I I love your response there. I've got a whole pile of books on my desk. I, I ought to be reading, <laughs> sure. and I'm reading Lord of the Rings for the fourth time. Instead, yeah,
2: that absolutely, I get it.
1: Uh, I just I can't help myself. Um, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, Chris, thanks so much for
2: your time here. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to meet you. Good to Rachel, you, good to see you. Yeah, good luck. likewise. Thanks. All right. Great.
0: We'll see you. Bye. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.